Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. The talk is not exactly about our work. I guess it uses our work as a platform. It's really about the description of our work. How do we actually take the idea that we start with and how do we actually begin to translate that into a building? Very much in terms of how do we describe it. How do we actually geometricize it and how does that geometry actually work in terms of creating a metric for the building? What's particularly interesting about that geometry is we work with really, really, well, because we, for some reason, ended up winning a lot of like really cool projects, we have the luxury of working with really cool, really brainy people. And um, what ends up happening is that as we begin to describe and geometricize this project, the project also becomes really interesting and brainy and actually starts to develop into something else, uh, very interesting. So, I mean, um, somebody who probably comes up time and time again in here and probably we couldn't even lay authorship to some aspects of the project would be Francis Archer from Arab. Um, we've worked with um, Tim McFarlane a lot, um, and I'll probably just touch on the stuff he's done, and also uh, Tom Gray who, uh, from Tess, or Peter Rice's old firm. Let me go through it. So a lot, of, I guess 50, 60% of this is the presentation of other people's work. Um, so, I mean, if we start with Garsh and Malcontente, maybe, Palladio. And, it, I mean, we, we know the projects very well, but um, this is Colin Rose, Mathematics of Ideal Villa. Um, for some reason, this kind of A, B, A, B uh, structure that actually is under say, A, B, A, B, A, A, B, A, B, A, though we don't really necessarily um, pay much attention to it, it becomes very important in how, how Corbusier and Palladio actually structure these, these two projects. Um, and whether and how they're perceived at the end, even though it has this kind of invisible geometry, how it affected the project. By intertwining it with this particular geometry, it actually gives the project a bit more depth um, in its development. So if we zoom in a bit, uh, the same thing. Um, obviously, Corb took um, Garsh from Malcontente with the stair and so forth, but he basically took this kind of A, B, A, B, A, B uh, system. And that starts to almost subdivide the building into a series of hierarchies. Um, the A being uh, very wide, maybe the public spaces. B, maybe the narrow ones could be things like circulation and cores. You can see actually the stairs actually fit inside the B zones. So there's a particular rhythm in, of expansion and contraction, whether it's spatial, whether it's serve versus service. Kind of all of these qualities actually start to become organized within a particular geometry that gives a certain depth to the project. <coughs> And, in many, and this is effectively what the talk is about. It is actually about this underlying system that gives a richness and begins to describe um, um, the things that would happen in, this bu in the building. Um, this is something I actually saw in a lecture by Cecil probably 15, around 15 years ago. Um, and um, if you start at 0, 0 in AutoCAD or wherever, Revit and so forth, 0, 0, 0, you construct a grid, let's say it's a, let's a 9 by 9, so it's 3, 3, 3, and so forth, and you actually started to cons um, organize a series of diagonals through it, which connects the, the kind of the grid points. We don't use sign, we don't use that trigonometry stuff in our office because it has all these funny numbers after it. We don't like anything after the decimal points. Everything in the office is... Is all zeros after the decimal point. I actually go into people's drawings at night. If I see zeros after the decimal points, I just erase the drawing. 
Um, so, and then at these intersection points, um, uh, where the diagonals crisscross, you can say there's a series of intersections. And what's interesting about all of that is that is not random. It looks random. People kind of put dots over the page, and maybe well, that's how we start. But once we actually start that way, we actually begin to superimpose something that begins to organize and move everything around so that effectively there is an underlying structure behind everything. So that is not random. Everything is fixed. And what's interesting about all that is if you actually look, nine, over 90% of the dimensions when these diagonals intersect, not using trigonometry but ratio, and repeating is actually a four, is not an irrational number because we can actually generate the ratio that repeats it. All of those numbers are whole numbers. And this kind of alignment between these two dia diagonals, which are organized based on a series of intersections along a grid, actually begin to give effectively a structure to something which is seemingly chaos in the very, at the very start. And this is something we do to every single project. And it actually works in 3D. If you actually try to get your lines to intersect in 3D, those points in three dimensions actually, again, 90% of those points actually all hit in the whole numbers. So there's a kind of underlying organization behind anything that looks somewhat random that it almost gives the, an intuitive quality that it actually is somehow organized. So if we go to Jam, I'm going to kind of breeze through the kind of um, architectural blah, blah. So it, was, um, it, it is the pyramids. It's a kind of a collision between uh, what is effectively desert and the city. It's very close proximity. This shows the kind of the Nile Delta, the Nile, Egypt's down here, Alexandria's up. Alexandria is up here. It shows, kind of shows the Nile as it comes up to the, um, the Mediterranean. It kind of fans out into the Nile Delta. Uh, what's interesting about uh, what's peculiar about the geological and very much symbolic condition of, of Egypt at, is that effectively it's all desert, but it is, has a kind of intense greenness of fertility, which is greener than in many ways Ireland. So you can actually see at the upper level here is the desert plateau, and the Nile River effectively has cut out the desert plateau. So it's minus about 60, 70 meters below that with the Nile in the middle. And that is the kind of incredible fertile landscape that we know of Egypt. What's interesting is that most of the stuff that's left over from Egypt is actually built in the desert plateau, and hence the kind of, kind of dichotomy between life and death, and the pyramids and all the tombs would effectively be up here. Um, uh, we actually, are the building, uh, the Grand Egyptian Museum would actually be uh, aligned uh, to the topmost pyramid, so that uh, it starts at zero, and so its geometry is, effect is formed by a kind of a particular geometry set up by the pyramids. Um, over here, you can see that intense collision of the Nile Valley against that of death, which is the desert plateau, the three pyramids sitting here. Uh, the green represents that intense juxtaposition. And we worked with um, um, West State on this project, um, and they are very much the designers of most of the landscape, like 90% of the landscape. But what they did is they took this kind of intense collision between green and desert and made it a feature within every single park within, within the museum itself. The museum would then be situated inside the, the arrangement or the geometry to the pyramids back to here, and then it would be sit inside that kind of cone of vision, we call it. So here's the, the kind of the rays that kind of come out to the, um, um, 
uh, the pyramids themselves. Uh, so the the we start with this uh, the site being located at the at the kind of collision between the Nile Valley and the Desert Plateau, a point that begins on one corner of the site, moves to the first pyramid. And like a Chinese fan, we kind of fan the whole building out so it actually captures all three pyramids within the kind of exhibition space of the museum, the pyramids being the biggest exhibition. It is a chronological museum, so we took a series of grid lines, um, which represents time. So our grids, instead of being one, two, three, four, we would actually had um, uh, timelines attached to each of them. And within this kind of radio pattern would sit the museum. Um, and from the museum, you can see the pyramids down here. And from the kind of upper level of the desert plateau, you can see the city. That, again, is the line between the Nile Valley and the desert plateau. So this is plus 70, and that's zero, or vice versa. So there you can see the building as it aligns to all three pyramids. Infrastructure. So um, uh, from an infrastructural point of view, the Nile is very much a piece of infrastructure. The Egyptians use it to effectively kind of control all of this uh, particular landscape. And with modern 20th century um, infrastructure would be kind of like this, uh, the highway. Um, Again, this kind of intense juxtaposition and the kind of so-called fanning of, of the Nile uh, Delta into this kind of before it reaches the, the Alexandria coastline. This is actually an Egyptian scale rule. We just thought it's kind of interesting. It's made out of stone. Um, the, uh, the Nile Valley. So the, in the museum itself, there's actually two components. There's the museum, which is um, open, I don't know, eight hours a day. And then there's um, Egypt has the lowest amount of public space per person in the world. So the other part of the museum, which is the landscape, which is open 24 hours a day, is something that is part of everyday life, which is the living museum. We have a kind of Nile park, like a scale rule that goes to the whole, or highway that goes to the entire thing. And like infrastructure, it touches everything, but in the most eco economic and efficient of ways. It wastes nothing. Above here, we say that's the exterior program. Below there, it's the, um, no, sorry, interior and exterior. These are the bends along the Nile. You see how we, actually, it's actually three kilometers long. You see how we squish it onto the site. So we have some landscape um, um, program. We have some museum program, other program, exhibition space, and other program. And we kind of zigzag it like intestines onto the museum itself. So you can see that the Nile Valley, which is actually the, the landscape part of the museum or open 24 hours, is something that kind of traverses everything. It touches everything, which is the nature of infrastructure. It needs to touch everything in the most minimal of means. And within these kind of expanded um, um, zigzags are the, the kind of gardens which are done by West State. Um, the, because it actually goes over between the Nile Valley and the Desert Plateau, plus and minus 20 stories, you can see the Nile that actually pops from the lower level of the Nile up to the Desert Plateau and back and forth. And it effectively organizes the whole site. You can see the building here. So the other, we call it the other gem, which is the gardens, which is open all the time. Um, here's the museum itself, and when you unfold it, you can actually see the Nile Park, which is this kind of other gem that zigzags through. Uh, so structuring it, starting with zero, zero, um, interesting, well, basic maths. Uh, if you took three points and you, and you connected them, as long as they're not aligned, it forms a kind of arc, so there's zero, zero. So we took that whole arc and kind of flipped it around, and there's our museum, which also has a zero, zero. So they're kind of um, um, symmetrical about the pyramids themselves. When we actually won this project, we only had three people in the office, you know, billion-dollar project, million square feet, three people. We said, oh, Christ, how do we do it? And whenever we left the office, we had, we, nobody was answering the phones. We kind of just locked the door. So we said, how do we organize this? So we became like project managers. We're really good project managers. So we actually chopped, we chopped the entire museum into a whole bunch of pieces and started giving them to everybody to do. 
Um, but one of the things when you give, when you're only three people and you give everybody a thing, the whole thing becomes like chop suey after a while. So how do we actually try to kind of bring everything together so that if we have everybody working on it, that we, some of we, we don't never worked with, how do we kind of keep it somehow cohesive? So one of the things, whoops, one of the things we actually did is we said that because it is very much a kind of a landscape project, there's no building and landscape, we, so we kind of rethought how we would um, construct the, uh, the, 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 the kind of the schematic drawings. So the whole idea of the grid system, because it's landscape and everything is inside, outside, outside, inside, that the grid actually goes over the entire site. The site is about a kilometer by a kilometer. So everything on the site is effectively building. And this way, it's like infrastructure. We draw the whole grid over everything in the most, in the thinnest of lines. And then at this point, we know where everything is. And then, and we actually then took the grid, which was developed with uh, Francis at Arab, um, and then we distributed to all the kind of um, the consultants, and effectively they had to be on grid. So the only thing we really did in, t in terms of coordination, what coordination we did, was effectively checked if everything was on grid. So anything that kind of slightly moved off grid, we immediately knew, ah, coordination issue. We never checked individual drawings. We just looked for things that didn't align. Um, so there it is, the building. You kind of kind almost don't see what's inside, outside. It's all kind of zigzag in out landscape, so forth. And the Nile actually falls along the grid. They're all whole numbers, uh, zigzags across. Um, and the other thing we did, because it was tons of landscape, contours are a disaster, because they got billions and billions and billions of points, and then the drawing crashes, and everybody's trying to redraw contours too slow. So there's only about 120 points. No, we got three people. We don't have time to do contours. So, we, uh, so there's only about, I don't know, 120, 200 points on this entire thing. We, so we triangulated the site. So we effectively can control like half a kilometer by half a kilometer by half a kilometer with three points. Uh, obviously, we had to subdivide it a bit more as people started to kind of get into it. But this is actually part of the grid that would be distributed to all of the subconsultants. And it's through this grid that we kind of project manage all the designers happening at the same time. Even the light bulbs are on the grid. Uh, and then you have the zigzag, zigzag on the grid, and uh, and then kind of um, then Francis was flying back from Egypt, and he drew on this kind of vomit bag, this formula, and this was it. So rather we thought of this, we're not going to dimension the drawings because there's too many dimensions. Everything gets confusing. Can we come up with something of the dimensionless plan? So he came up with this formula, which is grid number multiplied by twenty. Well, there's a whole bunch of other stuff behind it, but grid number multiplied by twenty-five multiplied by unit. So the, the building is a series of rays, um, and this is where the A, B, A, B, A, B starts to come in. The Bs are this, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, and those are the service zones, those are the dark areas, and those are the areas that we actually move infrastructure through. The building is then 30, 36, 36, 54, 54, 66. So you have to remember 18 and these numbers, 236, 254, 66, and 30. So there you can actually then see the... Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the 18s, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, 18, which are the service zones, all the stairs and services, 30, 36, 36, 54, 54, 66. And that is effectively all, and, the, and the, that formula is all you need to know. So we call it the digital streams, um, because there was, I forgot already, it's too long ago. But anyway, some digital thing. Uh, that they wanted. Um, so this is the, the famous drawing. I don't know where I put it. So this is one Francis drew. Um, we changed the number a bit. He used the binary number. We went to a binary slash tertiary number. But other than that, that is effectively 
The formula comes out of that. I don't understand it. Um, the, and what happens is, I put, we put the numbers on here only because, to, to clarify, when we issue the drawings, there are actually no numbers. There's this entire drawing and just the grid line. So if I actually zoom into these things, so let's just take, for example, so if I actually took, um, let's just say, uh, grid line 18, and I took 8,100, that's a B band. So if I took 25 times 18 times the grid thing, 18, I get 8,100. So here you have 20, 24, 300, that's a 54. So I have to take 54 times 25 times 18, I get 24, 300. So effectively, you actually don't have the whole entire, the contractors went cuckoo because there's no dimensions on it. <laughs> no, but you have to kind of go have an initial meeting and then you kind of explain to them, you know, it's really not that bad. You just, you, you just, all you have to have in your pocket is not 3,000 drawings, just the grid, just that formula. And you have to know what, where the column lines are. So, uh, and the roof kind of is the same concept, but it extrudes from that. Um, we took the same triangle. I can't zoom in. So it's the same triangle, but you actually move it. Every, the, 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 the kind of fattening of the roof, which goes from zero to that dimension over here, which is structural depth. So as the roof gets wider, the structural depth gets higher because it needs to span more. Uh, but that angle is actually a ratio rather than a degree which effectively means that I can zoom into it. You'll see that there's a series of key points, which is here, 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 here. Every single point on that entire roof, if you ID it, is a whole number. Um, so um, what that means is uh, this, uh, this is actually the, the end product of the, the formula. This is a kind of a formula which draws the roof. So you have the equation, it draws the entire roof, and you, if you spill out its guts, the, those are the numbers. And we just check the roof positions and see if it can span with that. So there it is, and the kind of roof sits over it. The translucent stone wall. A great thing about um, crappy materials is... With, we had really crappy materials. And the great thing about things that are problems or crappy materials is that the, the architect then has to kind of figure out how in the world to actually come, come, come with a solution that deals with the crappiness. And, and how you deal with crappiness, you have to invent. It's about creativity. So, so, so how we kind of unravel and deal with weak stone, which is a stone that just really has no strength, is why the whole entire Sierpinski uh, wall or the translucent stall wall came about. Its entire organization is, is because the stone is effectively worthless. So that's the kind of translucent stall wall. It's about 20, 20 stories high. It's the Nile on this side, there's a plateau on this side. And you see all these kind of triangulations in there. Um, and it, in the evening, it's got lights and it glows and it's kind of cool. The stone, so there's 24,000 um, square meters or feet of stone. It's four football pitches filled with stone. So we had to like buy two quarries. Um, and then this is a model of the, because it's actually, it's terrible. It's not very sustainable. Um, because it's actually kind of a semi-precious stone. Um, the, the, that's, the, that's the kind of subdivision of the Serpinski wall. This is the stone. The stone is actually, when we originally did it, it's alabaster. Um, and which is translucent, but the trouble with alabaster, I think it's that it's gypsum, um, and which means it's effectively weak. And what we ended up changing to was onyx, which is, has a silicate base, which is glass, which is why it's effect stronger. 
and it had to be the stone because we had to kind of create the, the, the translucent wall, which is what we came up with um, for the competition. This is the kind of fractal system that's subdivided, and that's how it illuminates at night. Um, this is white cloud onyx. I think this is from Iraq. Um, and then this is also Iraq. And this is a honey on onyx from Turkey. So what, what had to happen is, um, in order to understand how the stone would be in 50 years, we had to uh, test it. We have to do something called, they did put it inside called, something called HALT, which is a highly accelerated life cycle testing chamber. And it, you bombard it with tons of crap, and you effectively see what happens in 50 years. Uh, the control sample is none other than granite. It stays after... 50 years, it looks exactly the same as it does on day one. So you basically have original and new, original, new, original, new, and likewise, original, new, original, new. You'll see that after all the bombarding, you'll see that the fissures, if you look over here versus over here, you get all these fissures that start to actually start to reveal themselves. These fissures then start to... So effectively, we can begin to predict the predictability of that stone, which is in fact unpredictable. Um, that's the testing chamber that we built. Uh, well, I didn't build it. Uh, Brian built it. And then um, these, we, we blasted it with UV, um, sand, massive temperature changes, and so forth. Anything conceivable thing we can, can imagine. Uh, so that's the stone. Um, the steel. The steel. The steel is, there's 43 mega frames. Each triangle, we call it a mega frame. There's 43 of them along the kilometer stretch. Um, and um, what the mega frames are actually, the triangles along the mega frame are actually along that kind of east-west chronological grid. They actually don't form equilaterals or anything or, or equal subdivisions. Everything falls along the grid. So again, from a structural engineering point of view, we know what Arab is doing because we know that it aligns with every single point along that grid or subdivision thereof. And What's cool about it is that uh, we put the acoustics also along those grids, so when you walk through the museum and like shout, ah, or through the whole thing, that you actually, the sound absorption goes up and down, so you can actually know where the tight triangles are if you shout the same amount through the whole museum. And then there's kind of these triangles that open up to get in. Oh, that's OMA Seattle Library. It's a lot of stone, you can see, a lot. Um, then if we look at one of these mega frames, the mega frame is uh, kind of subdivided using a fractal pattern that Francis came up with again. Or well, he didn't come up with Sierpinski gasket, but he used it. Uh, and it, it's a binary fractal pattern. So what it does is it subdivides. So it's like memory chips. You, you know, you buy memory back long ago before terabytes came along, like 2 megs, 4 megs, 8 megs, 16, 32, 64, 128. So we, generally we know how many pieces of stone is in the entire mega frame because it's binary. Uh, so there you see the half, which is the big guy, and then you half it again, and you half it again, half it again, half it again, half it again, and so forth, and the, you get the big stone wall at the end. Um, and now in terms of the steel, which is what holds it together, we have the primary steel elements. We have a series of, kind of the, uh, cable nets, like a big tennis racket. Uh, so it, it kind of, this is very bouncy. Um, so there's two, there's two cables. There's one which is dead load, which holds the weight of the stone, and one which is kind of the lateral load, which is the in, in and out movement, uh, which is induced by the wind. Um, the steel frame, the primary dead load cable, and the secondary cable net, which deals with wind in and out. So, but the, the, the notion is that because the stone is not necessarily just weak, it's unpredictable, we don't know, with every single yield and blast, we don't know what we're going to get. 
So in theory, we cannot draw the facade we want. We need to draw the facade that will be the resultant of how many cracks, or sorry, we have to draw the facade of the yield of the stone. So because you don't know, because it's semi-precious, we can't waste stone. And, and because we don't know where in the vein it is, we don't know how many cracks there are. So depending on the yield of the stone, the, this kind of fractal systems and subdivide. So from a design point of view, we want least amount of steel. So I don't know, maybe we'd subdivide to 128. Uh, sorry, 64, 128. But if the stone yield is not so good, we'll subdivide to 256, we'll go to 512, 102, 1024. So depending on the yield, so every single tr uh, kind of mega frame will be different because every time they do a blast they, 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 and they kind of anticipate how, how, what the size of the stone is, we have to build a mega frame based on that blast. And one of the things that because steel was very expensive, China was buying up all the steel at that point, we then looked at... Um, um, potentially can you even within a mega frame whether the stone itself could actually hold itself together so if the stone came in really really weak um, we can actually not introduce a mega frame because steel was too expensive and just pin it um, and that is the kind of the, the final subdivision when all kind of goes pear-shaped and we just get absolute crap um, the, then there's those of the nodes, Ed Forward came up with that, so there's a series of three um, cables that kind of misalign in three different planes, you'll see, I think maybe it's two, one, two dead loads and one uh, lateral load cable, um, and there it is clamped together, and they would hold up all the stone. Um, the, 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 the stone wall is very, very stiff in plane, so it's like a tennis racket along the edges, you can thwack someone, it, it doesn't really bend. But if the tennis ball hits it, kind of goes in and out very easily. So out of play, in and out of the wall, it's actually quite flexible. So um, we the, the the mega frames were then designed to subdivide it so that you had 900, 600, 450, depending on the size of the stone. So as you move down, into, it became smaller and smaller. So you can see when you're dealing with a larger mega frame, which is at that size, you need the 900, uh, then the uh, the 600, then the 450, 300, 150, and zero. So as you subdivide, the kind of the depth of the steel actually changes. Uh, the 900 being the one that spans effectively from top to bottom with one intermediary brace. Uh, there you see it in plan. So you see the kind of 900, 600, 450, 300, and so forth. Um, <laughs> this is really funny. If you actually take the, the zero, zero point, connect it to the, uh, the big pyramid, which is the kind of cut through the Nile and the desert plateau, it actually goes through, through Francis's office and then through our office. <laughs> it, he, I don't know, he gave, gave that to me one day. Antrim Coastline, this is another UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, beautiful coastline, UNESCO protected. Um, very cool rocks. Uh, it's been around uh, tourism. Um, it, it, it's actually, the, 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 these, these basalts are actually cooler on the UK, but nobody can get to them. The reason this is so popular is because it's actually easy to get to. Uh, there was a train that got there previously that you can see a really old poster, kind of been, always been a tourist attraction. Uh, this is actually the UNESCO World Heritage Site, the entire coastline. The building sits here. So the most, all of the buildings on this side only touches the coastline or UNESCO's property at one single point. Um, this is the competition rendering. You'll see the building on the left-hand side. There's a hotel here. It kind of pops up um, or right, kind of um, whatever displaces up to create the uh, visitor center. You displace down. There's a lot of cars out there, so you have to accommodate the cars. And in between is this pathway that comes to a point that touches the UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
Um, so how do we actually subdivide or, or, or kind of organize this thing? Um, there's the, it steps up, steps down, holds the, the museum, holds the car park. Um, and it's pretty trite, but, you know, you, you can, as it moves up, you displace the basalt columns, which is underneath. Um, and likewise, as you move down, you displace the basalt columns. And there it is kind of moving up. There it is moving down. Um, and this is what you see from the other side. I don't even know where the point is. Oh, there. There's the point. Um, there's a bus tour. Uh, the nice thing about the kind of um, um, uh, basalt, it's another hopelessly weak stone. It, it, it's, it, it, we call it a kind of contingent stone because if you look at this over here, there's not a single stone that's standing by itself. It kind of needs a neighbor. It needs at least two faces of it touching a neighbor such that it doesn't fall over. So it's highly, highly unstable. Um, there it is in built form. Um, uh, this is actually quite important. Uh, this is another, this is like the translucent stone wall. We didn't know what the facade was going to look like at the very end. So organizing and subdividing. Um, so there it is. There's a step up. There's a step down, pathway in between. The, the car park on this side and visitor center. And the thing we use to um, subdivide the facade is not something like mystical or anything like that. The only thing that we, what we had to use and the only thing that couldn't change is the BS car parking grid. We, you, cars can't, must park in a car park that works. So the entire facade is structured based on car parking requirements. And then you then subdivide it a bit more so that the stone gets small, so it's the, the car park facade. Uh, the basalt. Um, this is a great thing that the client did. The client said, I'm going to be sustainable. Um, and what that means is we couldn't buy the stone from China, which is 10 times the, 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 the strength, one-tenth the cost, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. We had to stay local, support local kind of stone quarries. This is actually the, from the same quarry that did that, uh, that Princess Diana's lay. No, the same stone guy that did this was the, did this, the Princess Diana's uh, lay in High Park. Um, so the, the, the basalt, another, uh, and Irish basalt is utterly useless. And effectively, all they do is they blast it. It comes out in tiny little pieces, and they just grind it down into mulch. And the only thing you can use it for is roads. It's aggregate. It's so worthless. So then the client said, no, I want to stay local. So we got roadstone for the facade. How do we do that? So you can pretty much like stick a stick inside and break it. Um, so that's the compressive strength. That's the flexural strength. It's 200 megapascals and, and 30 megapascals. I don't know. One's is compressive, one's flexural. But it's not, the, it's not the number that we're interested in. It's like the fact that it kind of bops up and down. That means, that, again, like Onyx, it's highly unpredictable. And that's something we effectively had to get around. So if you had granite, it would go soop, right across, soop, right across, and meaning no big deal. Every piece of stone is the same as the other one. So it, we effectively only can use it in compression. We kind of thought uh, the door, I mean, this is actually done quite a bit. We thought kind of door columns are kind of cool. Um, they don't fall over. Uh, they kind of just stack big pieces on it, and voila. Uh, the trouble is our columns are really thin because we need to get all that light in. So you had a 40 to 1 ratio as opposed to the 5 to 1 ratio. So somehow we have to simulate the dead load that this one creates in this one. So what we did is you kind of built it like the Greeks. It's just giant blocks of stone, and we kind of stacked them on top of each other. And to if create this kind of immense dead load, we put 
three holes in it. Oh, this is uh, Tim McFarland's baby. Uh, so we kind of stacked it all up, and the three holes, the center hole is smaller so that you can kind of rotate the stone and align it about a center pivot, and the two side ones is the one that really pulls down hard on it. We just compress it. And this is the whole thing about the blast. So we actually took 12 blasts to, in order to actually get all the stone, and every blast actually got worse and worse. So when we did the kind of elevation drawings, they were built... It was basically said that whatever blast yield, the average yield would, would produce the facade. So, so from, a, from the contractor point, that's good for the client because if you draw a facade and it changes, then the, client charges the, the contractor charges the client more. But if you draw a facade in this particular way so the yield produces the facade, then the client doesn't get charged more by the contractor, so, which is good. Um, we had to hit a budget. So then, so what happened is you can see the subdivisions here, like a lot of big stones. We really wanted big stones. And this is the 150, 300, and 450. And then you can see as the blast got, went on, it got worse and worse and worse. So you actually, as you walk along the facade, the number of joints actually increase as you kind of go to the tip where the, um, the, the, the Antrim coastline is because the blast just got worse and worse. And you can actually see the subdivisions just increase. And there was a system of subdivision increases. And there's the centering holes, and then you kind of rotate left and right, and those are the kind of compression holes that tie it together. Um, there's the rods, and then we kind of capped it off. Um, these are kind of views of the inside before it was occupied. Um, we actually had these kind of th three skewed angles. Kind of, We took the car park through it, so in order to kind of organize these three skewed facades with stone, we kind of created an A, A prime, B kind of pattern in order to organize it. And I'm going to just kind of skip through the steel columns. The steel columns are kind of cool because we have this geometry that actually skews. So in, rather than just rotating the column, we, we kind of cut it, took its steel plates, and we shifted it. And by shifting it, we actually get that kind of shape. Um, I'm still okay. Uh, there you see, there's the kind of shifting of the plates, which acknowledges the skew of the thing. Um, and Francis drew that too. Um, the, there's the facade at night. And there's the column on straight on, and then from the side. Um, this is a minor thing. I don't even think this is relevant. But the, 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 the kind of, those are the little feet, and the balustrade needs to support crowd loading. We were, having it perpendicular was great, but the building was kind of wonky, so it actually had an angle. So by going from straight, see, three kilonewtons, to diagonal, you'll go to four kilonewtons, which means immense amount of steel, and all you had to do is pull it back, so... What we did, what Tim did, he's just added these little diagonals in here. And that actually put the steel back to where the original design was. Each, each of these fields was what fits on the truck. Um, this is a project we, we've represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale. Um, it was called Common Ground. It was the Chipperfield one. And so what we thought perhaps, this is the kind of bench we did and everybody's sitting on it. Um, it, it's a giant seesaw. It's 12 meters long, but if you dissect it, it's 24 meters long. Um, it responds to the level of, there's a kind of course, soldier course here. It's kind of this whole notion that it's a series of seesaws where people would sit on it, interact. It's kind of the design team in some ways working together and also references this kind of line, which is where the water fluctuated up and down for the arsenale. It actually it was situated at the end of the arsenale. We figured the bench would be very good because everybody got really tired when they got to the very end and they could rest. Um, the motion of it. And I, we did this with Salam and Holger in Dublin, um, um, Arab. Um, 
And what's the great thing about this thing? They kind of, they kinda, it was really, really difficult because um, structural engineers take, make, make things stand up and not fall da- down. And effective, and a, a seesaw, which is what this bench is, a moving thing, is its, it's optimum is actually complete failure. So none of the kind of analysis program worked because they were always trying to make the structure stable when we wanted to make the structure completely unstable. So then everything was done by hand because none of the error programs would do anything. Um, there is the kind of the big seesaw being built. There is the soldier course in the back that it aligns to that's in its rest position. Um, that is in its full kind of active position where everything is up it, its, well, this highest position. Again, fully active position, so motion. This is really cool. So what Salam came up with is that they're, they're sitting on these little pivots, and there's something called elastic deformation and plastic deformation. Uh, somebody's going to correct me. Um, elastic deformation is if you bend the steel, it'll snap back to the original position. Plastic deformation is you bend it past the modulus of elasticity that it won't pop back to its original position. So what they've designed is, uh, what they had to calculate is the, the kind of these, these, piv- these pins or these pivot points such that the, the actual rotation, the maximum rotation never ex- went into plastic deformation and stayed in elastic. And it, effectively, the elastic would always pull the seesaw from its kind of maximum deformation back into its kind of flat, flat, flat position or position of rest. So, effect- so this is how it works. So here you see a pivot and a pivot um, here and here. The one seesaw and two seesaws, seven seesaws linked together, and there's a kind of hinge point at the, at the top. So when you actually sit on it, you'll see, because this is the hypotenuse of the triangle, the, the length of the seesaw doesn't change, so you end up with a gap over there. And then you can see that this thing, uh, because the steel is connected to it, it starts to bend and pull in, and the steel wants to pull the whole thing back out so it flattens out again. It's really cool. So this entire thing is based on a series of these vertical plates that bend and then pull back, bend and pull back. Um, here you can actually see the central pivot. We made it easier. We made the, the middle one stiff and the other ones move. So there's actually two pulls rather than one giant pull for the whole thing. These are the kind of pit pinpoints which actually links all seven seesaws together. So when people sit on one seesaw, you act, somebody else sitting on the other seesaw just suddenly pops up and they don't actually know who actually did it. So the whole notion of common ground is that all of these kind of consultants would come together and people would kind of begin to kind of play with it. And you can actually see when one person got into it and another person got popped up, they actually started to kind of balance each other out and people started getting on it and more and more people ended up on it trying to balance each other out. So you can get, really get it going. Uh, and then this is the interior the drawing of it with the pivot, central pivot, and the kind of connector pieces. Uh, there's the plat- elastic deformation. Um, again, this, this is the um, hand. Everything was manually calculated like old days. The, uh, they did the, once they calculate, I think they can simulate the movement. That's, um, that's momentum, that's shear, so the motion. And then we had to build it, so it went to Germany. And then Germany is really low risk. So they kind of took, uh, <laughs> they're very stable. So anyway, we had this whole thing really connected up, all connected as one giant interlinked kind of very zen. And what they did is low risk. So they took out all the connections. And they effectively made each seesaw operate as a perfect balanced thing. So all of the kind of poetry went out the window, but you know, it was, we had a budget to hit. 
Uh, so there's the kind of the guy who did it. There's the kind of there's a series of pistons, and they're no longer elastic and plastic deformation. We had you know oh, oh, German pistons, um, <laughs> and then there you see pistons and everything. And kind of, so each thing now operated perfectly. So if you sat on one and you not, didn't connect anything, they would actually pop back to the original. There's the kind of um, this, I don't know what that is. The, oh, that's a pin I think. And there's the pistons, and um, there's some more drawings. They did these. We just thought they were nice. There's another pin. Oh, there, there you can actually see it. So there's a pivot. Um, there's the piston. And because the, the pivot wasn't in the middle, and you have to add some big metal plates so that they pop back to original. So each one was perfectly balanced. Um, and then we got uh, our lighting guy came in. And what's nice, the, as you sit on it, where it's maximum momentum, you actually had the greatest light. So she would get the most light, and he would get the least light. And the light kind of responds to that. So this is the kind of uh, script they did for the light that's moving in one direction, the other direction. These are the, uh, the lux levels of the light fixture. Um, we actually related it to the giant's causeway. I don't know why. So anyway, where the stones are really kind of dense is where the biggest momentum is, and where it's loose is where the least momentum is. And there it is in the rest position, and there it is in the kind of active position. There's a spindle. Uh, the, this one we did with uh, AKT. Uh, who I think is here today. Um, so it was, it was great. We did a competition together. This, this is Corbusier Onzonfant studio. So um, that's Onzonfant, you know, the architect. Uh, they're like pensive and nobody knows what they're doing and they kind of imagine these things and they're like this creative spark of genius, you know, hidden in here. If you could draw a line through here. And there's the engineer, completely clear. Everybody knows what's going on. Everything works, and it's really good. And so this is kind of poetry, and, and there's architecture and engineering. Um, so this is what happened. This is, okay, there you see architecture engineering. Here's, here's what happened. Then we did the competition. We did a triangular section through the bridge. So the architect thought that the shape of the bridge was our skin. The engineer thought the shape of the bridge was their steel tubes and didn't meet. So anyway, <laughs> great. Well, good thing. I mean, it was afterwards we figured out. I mean, we're doing the drawings, and then the skin, the steel tubes didn't fit in the skin. Well, the skin didn't fit in the steel tubes. So we kind of come to the conclusion that engineering and architecture pretty much are like completely opposites of each other, and uh, that whenever architecture is really high on the bar scale, there's like no engineering, and whenever there's no architecture, you have really good engineering, and it's just like neither the two shall ever meet. So we have over here, as an example, road bridges. Very few road bridges are given to architects because we want to kind of move that column a bit. And when we move that column a bit, it's like 37 Indian elephants of load. And it's like cost 17 million of steel. Don't move the column. So our architects really do our pedestrian bridges. We can just move everything. And it's like no load, just a bunch of people. <laughs> so, um, so FO6. So there's three scales of intervention. We have the bridge, which is in the middle of the Olympic Park. At the big scale, the 10,000, we connect the Lee Valley with the Thames River. So this kind of infrastructure at an urban scale. And as we get closer, we actually connect the north, northern concourse with the southern concourse. This is actually the epicenter of the Olympic Park. It's the one bridge that went to competition. And finally, when you get to the bridge, you can actually see Carpenter's Lock. Um, and actually, there's two levels to the Olympic Park. There's the upper concourse and the lower towpaths and waterways. And we actually connect sectionally. So it's bridging the, 
It's a ridiculous bridge. It's only 30 meters long. It's not a bridge. In the middle is a uh, carpenter's lock. Uh, one of the competitors said, why don't you just get rid of it? But what's nice about the carpenter's lock is that at the end of the day, it actually connects, I mean, this is a bit poetic, but it actually connects the river to the canals. So it actually connects the kind of nature to the industrial past of what the site originally was. So this is kind of a symbolic thing, that, which is why it's kind of nice to actually keep it. Um, the, the shape of the bridge, originally in the Olympics, the, you have this side and this side, it's 60 meters, and they fill in this entire center to get the people movement through. And during legacy mode, they actually remove it. There you can see the carpenter's lock. The, the thing with our bridge, it was actually the only way we can get one bridge over the carpenter's lock and still be able to pull the floodgates for repair. The shape is determined by maintenance. So there's the bridge and the kind of legacy mode. So we say merging two horizons because on the upper level there's the concourse, the lower level is the waterways and towpath, and we're actually connecting vertically rather than across because it's only 30 meters. You can throw a stick across and it works. This is the lower level. This is coming down into an amphitheater with the bridge on top. And so we call the Olympic period the spectacle period, which is the kind of Olympic, uh, Olympic confetti. Um, and this is actually what cre increases the bridge to 60 meters um, across. Um, the tiling pattern is actually a Penrose uh, fractal, so I think there are three pieces, or two pieces, and you can pretty much do the entire thing. Um, there you see the Penrose, and it kind of repeats, not asymmetrical, symmetry, whatever, um, mirroring. There it is, the entire pattern. It's pretty good, the contract just got all these things on the access hatches on the holes. So in legacy period, we actually removed the spectacle. There's the thing, um, the um, carpenter's lock underneath. So you can see connecting above to below. You can walk along the edges, um, or you can go down into the performance areas. They actually use it for us. They put a plank over this thing now, and they have performances over here. Um, let me see. I'm still on time. Uh, second sky. The underside of the bridge is all this kind of reflective uh, stainless steel, highly polished panels. So again, how do we geometricize it? Uh, this one is based on a three meter by three meter grid. There's 10 going this way and whole, uh, 20 going that way. So in order to understand the thing, it's not some stroke of the hand to create the form. We basically just know that you need three modules this way, connected to four modules this way, five modules to this. And effectively, the whole thing, you, know, you pretty much know where, how to construct a bridge in your head. You can pretty much remember, remember it after a little while. And then we kind of just curve the ends. Uh, we find the midpoints of the intersections, and then we just displace the 2700, 1.2. This is where the argument came about, because we were the outside, and AKT was the outside, and we had to, get, we had to put some mass dampers in here to get it to work, um, 2700. But they got it to work. They're really, really thin. So again, we curve the keel, which kind of waves from back and forth, um, and then the rest of it is effectively subdivided. The nice thing about this geometry, it actually, um, again, we, we had no dimensions in the drawing. All we do is that we just say within that distance, it's equal, within that distance, equal, within that distance is equal. And all you need to know are these central points, sorry, these endpoints of the lines, um, as well as the keel, as well as the intersection and just the radiuses. So the entire set really, at the end of the day, is about 100 dimensions. We, we kind of feel that the dimensionless plan is the ultimate. Um, there it is, all the panels. Uh, there it is, um, just a few months ago. Um, 
rather than doing this grasshopper stuff, we, we didn't know grasshopper. Well, I took grasshopper course, not very good. It's good, but not that good. It's really messy. Uh, so what we did is we had a uh, 288 balustrade, and that is the only drawing we issued. We didn't do one of these grasshopper things where you pulled every section out and you put it on a drawing and put a billion dimensions on it. That describes 288 balustrades, and every single number of the balustrade is a whole number. Basically, the balustrade goes from one tilt to the over other tilt. Uh, it goes from this side to this side. And effectively, you can do everything based on one drawing, which is basically a formula that describes everything. There it is, in the list, lifted into place. Six millimeter tolerance on 30 meters. Amazing. There it is, the keel um, that it waves. Oh, this is another thing we discovered during the, the manufacture. If you kind of um, cold bend metal panels and you push it, it kind of goes into this Gary-esque fold. We ended up, for some reason, all the joints, which are supposed to be 15 millimeter, ended up to be much bigger, 18 millimeters, 24. We didn't actually know why. Uh, just this is much more out of curiosity. So we cold bend it. Cold bending means you have a slight curvature along the panel. But what happens when you overbend metal is that it snaps. It, start, it goes into two triangles. And there it is, the triangle. So it's that deviation, which is kind of almost has a kind of echo to the, the deviation within the um, elastic plastic deformation of the bench, is what ended up producing funny joints at the end. We never anticipated that the material would snap into two, two triangles. So then we put tons and tons and tons of ribs inside this so it doesn't snap into two triangles. Uh, that's the zigzag. That's the point of contention. It works. And there's the reflection. And that it is in the Olympic Park. That's it. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.